Thank you, Pastor John, and thank you, WordServe Nation, for tuning in for our online worship experience. It is good to see you again. As I mentioned earlier, I hope that we will be together soon and that uh, life will go back to whatever normal was. We are in the middle of a sermon series now called Trials and Temptations, because let's face it, we're living in trying times. And as I mentioned in the earlier part, the trials and the temptations tend to go together. So it behooves us to know how to deal with them. As we go forward, we're going to look at none other than Jesus Christ himself, as he was tempted in the wilderness by our chief adversary, Satan, to see what tactics he used and employed to get through it safely and to still honor his father. We are, this week, we are dealing with uh, the issue of safety, the second temptation, as is read in the book of Matthew. We dealt with bread last week and the very basics, so I would encourage you to go back and look at that one. Uh, and then next week, we'll be talking about status, how uh, we can be tempted by status. But today's question, uh, we're going to deal with uh, what does it mean to test God? Uh, should we be worried about that? How do we avoid that? And why is that even a bad thing? If you look back to last week's sermon, we covered this uh, hierarchy. This is Maslow's hierarchy of needs. If you're in education or psychology, you recognize this. And basically, it builds from the bottom up. If you don't have the basic physiological needs like air, water, food, shelter, etc., you will never get beyond uh, the next level. So what's the next level? Uh, in this case, safety or the going up love and belonging, the self-esteem, and then finally, desiring the most that one can be. Now, I recognize that this is a psychological and human construct. It is not biblical uh, per se, but it is very insightful and informing because it does explain a little bit about human nature. And who knows better about human nature than the one who created uh, us? So last week, uh, this is where this is insightful. Last week, Jesus was tempted after 40 days in the wilderness of being hungry. Why doesn't he just turn the stones to bread? So if we look at this hierarchy, last week we talked about the basic physiological needs. Our enemy attacks at the base of this pyramid, hoping that we will never experience the next level up. If he can convince us that we can't even rely on God for the basics of air, food, and water, then we will never feel safe. And if we never feel safe, we will never feel love and belonging. And if we never feel that, we will never feel recognition, strength, and freedom that is in God and Christ. And if we never feel that, we will never truly become who we were made to be, is my uh, supposition here. So as last week we talked about physiological needs, why don't you turn these stones to bread? This week, he takes the next level, the safety needs, personal security. Let's find out more about that. This is a picture of the temple, uh, in fact, the highest point on the temple where this next temptation occurs. Satan failed to get Jesus with the first temptation of turning stones to bread. So he moved on and uh, took him to the highest place, the pinnacle of the temple of Jerusalem, and said this. Then the devil took him, that would be Jesus, to the holy city, and him stand on the highest point of the temple. If you are the Son of God, he said, throw yourself down, for it is written, He will command his angels concerning you, and they will lift you up in their hands, so that you will not strike your foot against a stone. 
Jesus answered him, it is also written, do not put your Lord, your God, to the test. These are the words from Matthew chapter 4, verses 5 through 7. For these words are the, the word of God, and for them we are grateful. So what is the deal? What, what is Satan trying to do here, and, and what is the angle from which he comes? We already mentioned that he failed to tempt Jesus on the first fundamental physiological need. So now he's going after that second need for safety. Now here's one thing that I find interesting. There's a change in venue. In other words, in the first temptation, Jesus is in the wilderness. And Satan makes every attempt to make him feel like he is all alone, like perhaps God has abandoned him or forsaken him. Have you ever been in a piece of land that is so desolate, so barren, that we call that the God-forsaken wilderness? That's what I think Satan was going after, is to try and isolate and make Jesus feel so alone. Why is that important? Because later Jesus will feel so alone as his disciples abandon him. He will feel so alone as he cries from the cross, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? If he hasn't passed that test before, he may not pass it when it counts. See, I think everything is done for a purpose, even if we can't see it. And so there's a change in venue where in the wilderness, Satan wanted to make Jesus feel so alone. Now he takes him to the pinnacle of the temple. And what's significant about that in terms of, of location? Well, the temple was where God was housed in the Old Testament. That was where God lived. You could not be any closer to God than to be at the temple where God was residing. That was the Old Testament understanding. So as Jesus is transported into this new setting, he couldn't be uh, from being as far away as God as possible to couldn't be any closer to God. Then the challenge becomes throw yourself down because it's written See, now Satan has caught on. Jesus responded with Scripture. Now Satan is using Scripture as his weapon. And, and it's also interesting to note then that Jesus counters with what? More Scripture. It's just the difference between a twisted Scripture and true Scripture. And that's one of the things that we need to figure out today. So as Satan uh, is calling out Scripture here, he is actually quoting Psalm 91, this, this is uh, what we call dueling scripture here. <laughs> Satan's uh, quoting Psalm 91 in that part about uh, you need not fear the enemy. If you go and read Psalm 91, it's a very powerful psalm of, of protection. But again, Satan takes a little bit out of context and twists that. Now, it's interesting to me that Jesus comes back with Deuteronomy 6.16. Now, why is that? And, and how many people have honestly taken the time to study Deuteronomy? What's up with Deuteronomy? Well, Deuteronomy is significant for, for a couple of reasons. You might recognize this guy. Uh, this is Moses. Uh, yeah, it's an Old Testament biblical character from the back. Who can tell? Uh, it, this is Moses. And uh, Deuteronomy is a lot of what Moses is saying to the people of Israel at the end of his life, near the end of their wandering at 40 years in the wilderness, Moses is giving some final guidance to say, this is what you should do as you prepare to go into the promised land. And if you will do this, then you will have a good long life 
in a land that is promised. You will inherit the blessings that you didn't work for. You will eat from crops that you didn't plant. You will enjoy cities that you did not build, all these kinds of things. Uh, and this is, uh, Jesus' counter comes out of Deuteronomy 6.16. I'm, I'm reading from 16 and 17 together. But this is what Jesus said back to Satan. He said, do not test the Lord your God as you did at Massah. And then I'm, I'm adding, be sure to keep the commands of the Lord your God and the stipulations and the decrees that he has given you. In other words, be obedient. So you may be wondering, so what happened uh, at Massah that made such a stir? Well, if you go back and, and you read uh, through Exodus, I think it's chapter 7 in Exodus, you can get the full experience of what's happening there. This is yet another case where the people of Israel who have been pulled out into the desert are concerned. There's no water. They're, they're worried about where they're going to get something to drink. And they begin to grumble. And, and some of the bolder ones come to Moses and actually say, did you drag us out here in the desert so that our sons and our cattle and our daughters could starve and, and die of thirst? And then you can imagine the ongoing conversations. It would be better to have stayed there, be better to have remained slaves in Egypt. And Moses is so frustrated because they're, they're basically putting their loyalty in God based on whether they will have water to drink. In other words, if God provides, then I'll be loyal and I won't grumble. Instead of, I will be loyal and I won't grumble, and God will provide. There's a huge difference there, and there's a huge lesson for us as well. Which comes first, our devotion and loyalty and then protection? Or do we wait for protection to decide if we're going to be loyal and obedient. Major ramifications. That's what Jesus means when he says, don't test the Lord your God. And here's the other interesting thing that I won't go into right now for time's sake, but take a look at what Jesus is being tempted with and how he responds out of the book of Deuteronomy with what Israel went through as they were tempted in 40 years of wandering and, and where they failed. In essence, Jesus is reliving the temptations of that Old Testament Israel in order to pass so that as he goes into his mission, he's already been tested. He's already passed. He already has the confidence that he can overcome the temptation. That'll be important later. So hang on to that idea. So it always helps us, uh, as we mentioned last week, to know our enemy. And we discussed a, a couple of things last week about knowing our enemy in terms of he always strikes when we're vulnerable. So if we know when we're going to be vulnerable, that's helpful. Uh, he always attacks uh, the, some of the most basic needs when we're the most weary and tired. So know when those times are coming and surround yourself with people who can help you. But let's continue our journey in, in knowing a little bit more about our enemy based on this second tactic that he's revealed. And here's what I would say about that. Satan always puts self first. And he tries to make us think that it's putting ourself first. His primary incentive is self-service. Think about the ramifications of that. Uh, if we put ourselves first, then where is God in the mix? And, and isn't the very first commandment to love God with all our heart, mind, soul, and strength? Uh, to, and then right up there at the top, to put nothing before God, no other idol. And that would include ourselves. To, Satan can convince us that we are the most important 
then we will look out for whose interests? Ours. As the Bible says, we will do what is right in our own eyes without any reference to what God's plan is, without any reference to what is happening around us. It'll be all about us. The second thing I note is that Satan comes from many angles. Now, he has no problem retreating and retrying. So we have to be on our guard. If, if the first tactic didn't work, he's more than happy to back off and to try again and to come at it a slightly different way. Just like as he tried with Jesus to attack his hunger. Uh, that didn't work. So he retreats and he retries. He, he goes after the personal protection angle. Like if you threw yourself off this tower and God really loved you, then he would protect you. So he's trying to drive that little bit of a wedge, that little bit of doubt that if we continue to let fester, it will become a separation from God. What starts as a wedge ends in separation unless we deal with it. So understand that Satan is going to come from many angles. Now, there's two ways that we can deal with that. We'll talk about that in a, in a second. But, but understand this. Unless we want to be paranoid all the time and have our head on a swivel and try and catch every attack that's coming, we're going to be exhausted doing that. The, the other way we can do that is to surround ourselves with a community of people that will watch out for each other. so We can see the attacks coming. That's a far better way. And I would encourage that level of community that checks in with each other, that cares for each other, that watches out for these many angles that will be coming. The third thing I note about Satan is he always sells the benefit and always ignores the cost. Have you noticed that? Go all the way back to the very first temptation ever recorded in the Bible. In the Garden of Eden, Adam and Eve, he's selling the benefit if you will eat of this food, you will be like God, knowing the difference between good and evil. Now, he says nothing about the cost behind that. Eve's a little concerned. She says, but won't we, we die? And he says, no, you, you won't die. And he was kind of right. They didn't physically die. That's ignoring the cost. Because what happened is that they spiritually kind of died. They were separated from God. He sold the benefit of being like God and having this super knowledge. He totally ignored the cost. And the cost was this, to be cast out of the garden, to be removed from paradise, to be separated from God. And if you look at the, the story right there in Genesis 3, the, the toil that they have to go through just to make life work, the, the pain that will come upon them, uh, the, the separation from God, all of these things are the cost that somehow conveniently Satan forgot to include as he was tempting. That's not a mistake on his part, because if we stopped to count the cost, we probably wouldn't go down that path. So understand that our enemy always sells the benefit and always ignores the cost. He does that on purpose. So let's take a look at what the first two temptations that we've dealt with. We've broken this into three categories, what the temptation is, what that temptation really means, and then what that temptation would cost. The first temptation, turn the stones into bread. And what that really means, if you look at it, is Jesus, God's not going to help you. He's abandoned you. So take matters into your own hands. Now, if that happens, if we were to take matters into our own hands, what does that cost? 
I think it means we'll be limited to our own hands. We deny the, the hand of God the opportunity to act. Now, if you're like me, you're often frustrated by God's timeline. I, I get that. I am too. I wish things would happen faster. I wish things would happen the way that I want them to happen, but that doesn't work that way. But when I do allow God time and space to work, and I can look back over time and see where he has worked, the results are always far, far better than anything I could have done, even beyond my imagination. So if we are tempted to take matters in our own hands, we will reap the rewards of being limited by our own hands, and we will deny the hand of God. That's the first temptation from last week. Now this temptation, go ahead and jump. I think that's the name of a song. <laughs> But test that safety clause. If you're no closer to God than ever, if you're standing on the very highest point of the temple, then jump. But what it means is force God's hand. In the first one, we took matters into our own hands, but this time we're trying to force God's hand to work because this is what scripture said. But here's the cost behind that. If I'm forcing God's hand, who's the boss? Who's in control? Who's leading this relationship? No one wants to be manipulated into showing love. That's not true love. That's not the way that this relationship is designed to work. So if we attempt to force God's hand, then we are, in effect, attempting to be God, attempting to manipulate, just like all the other Old Testament religions were doing with their sacrificial system. It was always designed to try to manipulate the God to get something from them or to get them to act on our behalf. And again, who's the boss? Whose mission is going to be carried out? Probably not God's. I found a great quote as I was researching the, the, by a man named Bob Deffenbaugh. He says, sin is like the ride at the amusement park. The ride is short and the price is high. I think those are words to, to remember. So as we deal with all this, how do we uh, counteract? What is our strategy to stop Satan dead in his tracks? Again, I will tell you right up front, this is not something you should try alone. This is not something you can probably do alone. And, and that's by design. We are designed to be in community. But even more important than having brothers and sisters around you is to have Christ within you. That's the only way we're going to successfully counter this. So let's look at some tactics that we can then employ. The first one is to remember the difference between submission and subversion. What's the difference? Break apart the words for just a minute. Sub meaning under, underneath. A submarine isn't a ship that is on top of the ocean. It's under the ocean. So when I have submission, I am underneath the mission. Underneath what mission? Well, ideally, I'm underneath God's mission. And, and if I am underneath that, I am supporting the mission of God, then at the end of the day, what mission gets done? God's. God's mission gets done. Versus subversion. I'm underneath what version? I'm under my version of the mission my version of the timeline of what should happen, of what's fair, of what's just, of what I deserve. You can fill in the blanks with your own ideas, and you've probably been there because that is human nature. But if my version gets done, then God's mission does not. 
Think of the words that Jesus uttered in the Garden of Gethsemane. But nonetheless, you know, he, he was asking if there's any way that this can pass from him, this, this having to take on this cross, this terrible cup of God's wrath. And he says, is there any way? And at the end of that little dialogue with God, he says, nonetheless, your will, not mine, be done. In other words, he didn't promote his own version. He went back to God's will, submission, be done. The second thing I note about this is to cover all the angles for our counter to Satan. Because if he is so good at retreating and retrying and coming from all different angles when we're weak and vulnerable and tired, then we have to make sure that we cover all the angles. Like I said before, you can either be paranoid and keep your head on a swivel and you'll probably miss it, or you can surround yourselves with a loving community who has the authority to speak into your life and to look out for one another in a lovingly accountable way. That's the heart of Orb Surf community groups. And that's the importance of continuing to meet together, even if COVID prevents us from being together in person. You can pick up a phone, you can join a Zoom meeting, you can study together and check in, you can have a, a battle buddy, whatever you want to call them. You can have someone that is there watching your six so that you can in turn watch their six and take care of each other to cover all these angles. Third thing I noticed uh, that we can do to counter the attacks of Satan is to actually count the cost. Think about not just the benefit that's being put in front of you, but take that to its logical conclusion. If I follow this path, what's going to happen? If I go with this strategy or this plan, keep going on beyond just the benefit and see what would the cost be behind that? You might be surprised. And this is where I say that the brothers and sisters are valuable, but more so the Holy Spirit. If it's living in us, I consistently pray for the wisdom to see uh, beyond the current benefit all the way to the end. Satan's not there to help us. He is never going to advertise the cost of what's in front of us if he's tempting us. So we have to be diligent about asking the question to each other, to the Holy Spirit, to Jesus in our prayer, to be listening all the time, to count the cost and see what the logical end is. Well, as we wrap up a little bit, I want to revisit this dueling of scriptures. And, and I want to point out an irony because it's subtle, but it's there. And here's the irony. Satan, in his attempt to drive Jesus off track, quoted Psalm 91. Now, I should say he misquoted Psalm 91. He took it out of context, saying that if you would cast yourselves down, the angels would not allow you to even, you know, foot to touch a stone, they will protect you. But ironically, Psalm 91 was the very thing that assured Jesus' victory, but only as long as Jesus was obedient to the Father. In other words, as only as long as Jesus operated under submission and not under subversion. See, if Jesus had jumped, that would have been subversion. That would have been Jesus' version in forcing God's hand. And ultimately, when we're forcing God's hand outside of God's mission and God's will, who are we working for? We're not actually working for ourselves, and this is the great deception. 
We're actually working for our enemy because he is the great manipulator and he has attempted to help us find a way to manipulate none other than God himself. So the, the great irony here is that Psalm 91 was fulfilled by God, not, not by God delivering Jesus from death. In other words, this, this idea, I must be personally protected and never have any harm come to me, it's just not real. Look at the world around you. Look at anybody who has followed Jesus seriously. Look at the, the lives of the disciples as our first and foremost example. Look at the lives of Christians today who are living in hostile environments. Their safety is not guaranteed, at least not their physical safety. And there's the catch. Maybe there's more to it than just our physical safety. Maybe it's the safety of our souls, our eternal being. That cannot be taken away from us. And so the irony is that while God uh, did not deliver Jesus from death, he delivered Jesus out of death by Jesus' resurrection. What is so ironic about that? Think about this. What if Jesus had chosen safety as his number one criterion for following God's lead, for being obedient? If Jesus chose safety as his first and foremost need, then back in that Garden of Gethsemane, when he asked that question, is there any other way? Nonetheless, no, there's not another way? Well, then I'll follow my version. I'll, I'll opt out of the whole cross. Think about the ramifications of that for a second. If Jesus had operated uh, on his own version, there would be no cross. Without a cross, there would be no resurrection. Without a resurrection, there would be no hope. So if there is one thing that I would take away from today, one thing that I can make sure that I use consistently to stay true to the mission of God and to not abandon uh, my place in the kingdom, to not forfeit everything that is a benefit of following God, not only in eternity, but right here and now. There's just one question that we need to remember to ask. As we are confronted with a possible action or a, a course that we could take, ask this one question. Who is serving whom? If the answer is, I am serving God, then we've got the right approach. And if we can answer that in a way that honors God and brings glory to God, well, then we will have chosen well. Who is serving whom? Word serve. As for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. I pray you will too. Will you pray with me? God, thank you for the Son. Uh, thank you for your Son, Jesus Christ, and the example that he sets for us. Even as he was sorely tested in the wilderness and sorely tested at the pinnacle of the temple where you would have been as close as possible in the Old Testament understanding, he never went with his own version. He always submitted himself to the mission of God. God, help us by the power of your Holy Spirit to do the very same. Help us not to try and take matters into our own hands. Help us to not try to manipulate or force your hand, because at the end of the day, we're not really, we're going to be working for ourselves. We would be working for the enemy. Let us instead see clearly 
and understand where you're leading. Understand the cost and ask that question, who is serving whom? So that we know at the end of the day, we are serving God's mission and none other. Keep us true to the word. Keep us serving the world. And keep us underneath your mission that the world may know you and know who you are. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.